You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. It has power. So the reading today will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Um, that will be, so the Church Bible, page 1011. Um, so I'll give you a moment um, to grab a Bibles from the left or the right. Um, then we'll get into the reading. Join, join me. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we're going to... Good morning. It's lovely to be with you here at Caroline Springs. Um, the last time I was here was about seven years ago at a youth event in this very room. Uh, and I was um, kindly saying to the service leaders this morning when I walked in that this is the church that produced Jimmy Young, so good on you. <laughs> uh, Jimmy is a dear friend and colleague of mine, and so I, I think it's incredible that um, what you've been doing here in the ministry at Caroline Springs and what you've been producing and sending out... Um, to the wider church has been a blessing, no doubt. Before we get into the talk today, let me pray, and I invite you to pray and commune with God and posture your hearts to receive from Him. So let's, let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you today. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear you speak into our lives, speak into our minds, speak into our hearts, and shape us and transform us. Uh, by the gospel which has saved us and is calling all people everywhere to turn and be saved. So God, today we want to hear with ears of faith and see in your word with eyes of faith the truth that you have laid bare for us to see. Lord, protect us from distraction. Protect our minds from wandering. Protect our hearts from hardness. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move to show Jesus here today. Amen. Even though I've been to Caroline Springs about seven years ago, I don't actually know very much about this suburb. And so I wonder if you could start with this exercise, just in your own mind. You don't have to do it with anyone next to you. If you had to put all of the stories and narratives and worldviews of your suburb in a blender and produce soup, what would that soup be about in one word? 
I wonder if you could name it. Caroline Springs is about... Well, I don't know your suburb. I, I know my suburb. I've lived in Craigieburn for nearly four years now. And the story of our suburb, it's Craigieburn, is a story, the soup, if you like, is about opportunity, also known as creating a better life. That is the story of Craigieburn. People, families, men, women, children, young couples, young adults, old folk alike, all flooding to the northern suburbs of Melbourne, partly due to housing affordability, but also because mostly in search of opportunity. In this pursuit of opportunity, wanting to create the better life. Our demographic in Craigieburn is all about seeking out pathways that can deliver the better life. And there are two main ways that we find in our demographic up north that people seek to find the better life. And pathway number one is through education, and pathway number two is through work. Now, you could say that's pretty much standard about most places in Melbourne. We value being well-educated. We have some of the best universities in the world. We are creating and um, building better schools and more schools, and work. We all know the value of work. So that's universally true, but very particularly we find where I live and where I work that we see these two values driving people and propelling people almost as if they're two engines on a plane propelling people to this destiny of the better life that people are searching for. So this prevailing narrative in our culture up north is study... Pursue knowledge and wisdom so that you can get your dream job, which will give you money, which will give you power, so that you can have the dream life. Hi, little one. And you can see those values play out in a couple of different ways, and I'd just like to point them out to you. In our suburb, some of these values play out in subtle ways, and some of them play out in not-so-subtle ways. The signs and symbols of power through knowledge range from subtle flexes of power and through, for example, high standards of physical grooming in our suburb. They are they're flexes of power. Uh, in our suburb particularly, we've got gyms that overflow because people want to pursue some kind of power. Men particularly spend sometimes six days a week in the gym, two hours at a time, not that you can tell, but anyway. Um, all the way down to the noisy high-end branded cars that rattle through the suburb in the middle of the night on a Friday evening, or the opulent McMansions that we have at the northern end of the suburb where the starting price is a million dollars. People in these growth corridor suburbs seeking opportunity want to find ways to flex power and some of those ways are the ones I've just described to you. In our suburb, it's almost always physical. It's almost always material. If you've got power, it better be big, loud, and shiny. And if you've got it, you better show it. That is the narrative of our suburb. Power is meant to be shown. It's meant to be displayed. Your watch is meant to be seen. Your suit jacket's meant to sparkle in the light. Oh my goodness, what is going on here? On the other hand, this other value... Uh, that our culture and society places on education, wisdom, knowledge, but not just any kind of education, not just any kind of wisdom, not just any kind of knowledge. It has to be a very particular, special kind. This value is attested to by the ever-growing presence of one particular private school in our suburb. There is only one private school in our suburb, but it is about to have its fourth campus. And that's because 
people of our suburb in Craigieburn place such a high value on a particular kind of knowledge and wisdom. If you want wisdom and knowledge, go and get it. That's the value. So these are the two values in my suburb, and I wonder it's maybe not that different in your own suburb here in Caroline Springs. The pursuit of power through work and the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge through education are driving forces that propel people's lives in what sometimes people secularly might call salvation, the better life. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical power or nice things. There's nothing wrong with wanting a good education or knowledge or wisdom. What we're raising here before we get into the text is this need to examine the stories or the values that underpin and undergird the culture and society we belong to and live in. What is the salvation story that the culture is promoting and what are the values that are driving that story? What we've identified is that the culture of our day is promoting that salvation is found in the exercise or acquisition of power and the acquisition and exercise of wisdom and knowledge. So that is uh, the story of Craigieburn. Well, from Craigieburn and Caroline Springs to Corinth, big jump, big jump in time, big jump in distance, but not that great a jump in terms of culture and values. Corinth was a city of opportunity perhaps a bit further along in its op ability to deliver the outcomes than, say, a new suburb like Craigieburn. But it was a melting pot city where people of all religious or irreligious backgrounds, all sorts of cultures and ethnicities, blended into the city, into this melting pot, much like Melbourne. It was a cultural city. It was filled with ideas and the latest learning because it was on a trade route. People brought ideas from everywhere. Obviously, Melbourne is not really on the way to anywhere, maybe except New Zealand. It was a, a cultural city in that it was filled with the latest art and innovation. It was a sporting city. It was the home to the second largest games, the Isthmus Games, known at that time, only second to the Olympics at Athens. It was a status city. People found all sorts of ways of displaying their symbols of power, flexing their emblems and symbols of power. So in Corinth, the sales pitch for a better life was this. What's the latest wisdom you could acquire? And what power could you gain? And how could you flex both, both those things so you could climb the social ladder and have a better life? We're told in verse 22, and I flagged this right at the start, that the Jews sought signs, which is a flex of divine strength, and the Greeks sought wisdom, which is, in their minds, a flex of divine mind. Strength and mind, both flexing, is what people in Corinth were all about. They wanted a muscular approach to life. Success, power, intelligence, all of those things. And it's into this context of Corinth, into this melting pot of different cultures, the Apostle Paul examines and explains, he identifies and articulates the thinking of the day, and he notes that those ways of thinking aren't just out there in society and culture. They aren't just driving the culture of the day, but actually the, those ways of thinking are finding their way into the people of God's lives. And it's starting to govern and affect how people thought about matters related to God and eternity. All about wisdom acquisition. 
power flexes to climb the spiritual ladder. So when those ways of thinking infiltrate the church, human wisdom and human power, and we apply those to spiritual matters, we get a religion of self-help, of self-saving, that is entirely self-serving and self-glorifying. And that's the problem at Corinth. So here's the main point, and then we'll get into the text. I like to put the main point relatively up front. So if you want to remember what this talk is all about, here's the bit, just in case you don't zone out during the exegesis of the passage. But here's the point to remember. Neither human power nor human wisdom will save you and I. Only God, through the message of the cross, Christ crucified, will save you and I. And as we get into this passage verse by verse this morning, I want to ask you to think about two things as we go through the text. So question number one for you to reflect on in the background as you are listening and engaging this morning is, one, what do you truly trust for your salvation? What do you truly trust for your salvation? Is it the message of the gospel or is it something else? And the second thing I want you to reflect on as individuals and even as a church. What message do you hold out for others to hear? Is it the message of Christ crucified or is it something else? So like I said, uh, I spend about six days in the gym, not six days you know, in terms of 24-hour times six periods. I go to the gym six days a week and I spend maybe about an hour and a half there. Most of the time I'm actually talking to people rather than lifting, which is why I don't really get anywhere. But I have a friend at the gym uh, and I'm not going to tell you his name, so I'm going to need you to give him a name. Let's give my friend at the gym a name. Jim? Okay. So I'm at the gym and I have this friend named Jim. Uh, I first met Jim <laughs> four months ago. And when I met Jim... He was a self-declared nihilist. A nihilist is someone who just believes that nothing has meaning. There's no purpose, no meaning. So I, I found Jim in the middle of this existential crisis going, he's like, why should I bother with anything? Because nothing has any meaning. So I said, look, Jim, you should read Ecclesiastes. And he did. And uh, a few weeks later, we met and we talked for hours and hours and hours and I answered questions and we had coffee and I answered more questions and we had more coffee and I answered more questions. All of the major philosophies that he was wrestling with and were rattling around in his brain, we examined, we talked. I was, wow, this is a gripping conversation. Man, I haven't had a conversation like this in a really long time where someone's just so intelligent. He had some pretty big intellectual struggles. He was wrestling with really big philosophical concepts and trying to work out the meaning of his life. A few weeks later, after all of this wrestling, Jim and I see one another at the gym again. And Jim says, I, I'm no longer a nihilist. I read Ecclesiastes. I think now I'm probably a Stoic. I just kind of resigned to everything. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I, in the background, I thought, it's really cool that someone in his 20s in Craigieburn <laughs> knows what nihilism and Stoicism is. I'm like, good on you. The conversations continued over weeks. And then suddenly, Jim had questions. He said, you're a Christian. You told me to read the Bible. What's the Christian message actually about? Like, what aren't you telling me? I was like, ha-ha, thank you for asking. And I shared the gospel with Jim, beginning to end, from creation to restoration in the coming kingdom, the whole picture. And of course, in the middle of my gospel presentation is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the high point. It's the climax. 
It's everything. And I tell him the gospel story. To which he replied, his words not mine, if God, if there is a God, wanted to save people, why couldn't he do it in a more efficient and thoughtful way? What you're basically telling me, he said, is if I don't believe in Jesus dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, I'm going to go to hell. Why couldn't God, if he exists, he could see what he's doing, just save everyone without all that Jesus stuff? There it was. The struggle was laid bare. The very struggle of this passage was playing out right before my eyes to this very smart person who is wrapped in layers of intellectualism, yet was in total darkness and unable to perceive the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Effectively, what he was saying is, the message of Christianity is offensive. The message of Christ crucified is wasteful and foolish. For him, the message of the empty tomb was even more ridiculous. On that day, Jim said to me, look, it's been lovely catching up. I want to keep catching up with you. And when we catch up, you can try and convince me about Christianity, but I'm going to try and convince you not to believe anymore. We still catch up, and the jokes and the jabs come thick and fast. And that brings me, as a story, to our first verse in verse 18. It's just so real in this story. For those who are perishing... The message of the cross is foolishness, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross of Jesus Christ not only separates and divides how we approach time and history and how we measure years, that focal point of his death, but the cross, more importantly, separates and sorts humanity out into two categories. It doesn't just divide history as a time marker, but actually sorts people out into two categories, and those categories are those who are perishing, and those who are being saved. Both types of people you'll notice in this verse are marked by their response to one thing, and that is the cross. The cross being the central thing that divides and puts a stake in the ground and says, you must choose. But to those who are perishing, it is foolishness, and to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Here, in this verse, we have two ways to live. One way that leads to perishing, by scorning God's salvation. And the other way leads to being saved, by clinging to the cross of Christ. It's not hard to hear and see in that imagery the words of Jesus when he says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life but few are found in it. I wonder if you've had an experience like the one I've had with Jim, where you've been wanting to explain to someone the message of Christianity, and rightly so, you have pointed out that the cross is the focal point and the empty tomb are the climax together of the whole narrative of what God is doing in the world. And maybe you've had the response that I had from Jim not one of humble inquiry, but of intellectual outrage at how utterly dumb the message of the cross is to a modern person. Maybe you've had this question, why would God do it this way? 
I've had that question many times. In effect, when people ask that question, what they're asking is, or what they're saying rather is, if I were God, I would do it a different way. As if to say that we humans, with our limited scope of understanding, can work out all of the paradoxical character and attributes of God and hold them together perfectly and hold together his righteous requirements of justice and his holiness and his mercy and love and compassion, and we think we can balance it all and do it another way. Our little brains, as humans, just cannot comprehend why God chose this way, this way, to save the world. And so many reject the message of the cross because it just seems to them dumb, wasteful, outrageous, offensive, distasteful. Sadly, friends, it's not just those on the outside of the church today who are rejecting the message of the cross as the way in which God saves people from sin and death. But even many today in the wider church today are wanting to sanitize the message of the cross. It's just too gory, it's too wasteful, it's too offensive. So if we don't sanitize it, maybe they move it to the background, or maybe to the periphery, or maybe let's leave it for Good Friday and once a year we'll talk about it because, you know, we kind of have to. (laughs) Many today in the wider church are moving the cross out of the picture. And I don't mean the cross as in a wooden cross. I mean I'm talking about the message of the cross. If you do a quick Google search later today, maybe over soup, just as an exercise, do a quick Google search for the top 10 selling Christian books in 2021 or 2022. Or, if you don't like doing Google searches, go to YouTube and do a search for the top 10 most highly watched Christian messages in the last year. And you will find that most of them, not all, but most of them, take the power and wisdom of God, remove God from the picture, sprinkle God back in a little bit because Christians otherwise won't buy the book, and they repackage it and sell it to us and say, Christianity is all about cleaning up your life and learn from the principles and power of God how to be successful so you can also be wise and powerful. That is mostly what is being sold and that is mostly what is being watched as the top 10 books and the top 10 videos of Christian messages in the world today. No wonder most people think, most people think that Christianity is all about a guide to self-improvement, use 10 ways to better yourself, rather than the earth-shattering, ground-shaking news that the Son of God was crucified and died for the sins of the world. And this extraordinary news that he is raised to life by conquering death and is now offering forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who will trust in him. Oh, the biblical gospel is a much harder pill to swallow than what is being sold on the shelves today. As far as it relies on human power and human wisdom, from a worldly point of view, apart from the Spirit of God, we look at the gospel and go, makes no sense foolish, powerless. But it is that very biblical gospel that promises salvation and can deliver salvation because it is God's power and wisdom. In the darkness of the wisdom of man, which cannot comprehend God, that darkened wisdom will one day be judged 
and it's already beginning to be judged. That's why Paul in the next verse says, he quotes from Isaiah 29, 14, and he says these words, I will destroy, this is God speaking, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the understanding or the intelligence of the experts or the intelligent. The original quote is in the context where God is saying, one day I will put an end to the assault of earthly rulers and powers and wise people and smart people who want to gang up on the righteous and subdue what is right and true. And God is saying, one day I will put an end to that and I will install instead my Messiah who will rule, rule in righteousness and he will reign in peace and protect his flock. So Paul is warning in this passage, those who are wise in their own eyes, beware. Christians, if you have been scorned and mocked and ridiculed for what you believe, for you holding the message of the gospel of Christ crucified dear to your heart, take heart. When you are taunted for your faith, when you are mocked, when you are ridiculed, God is saying that one day that kind of mocking and ridicule and that kind of wisdom from which it comes indeed will be destroyed and silenced. That wisdom that is puffed up by pride, that produces no comprehension of who God is and what he has done. Paul says in verse 20 and 21, where is the philosopher? Where is the expert? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? And the answer we're meant to hear is nowhere. They're nowhere to be found. They cannot stand up and give an answer. Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolish message of what is preached. We've got, if you've got your Bibles open, we've got a repeat of this idea of the foolishness of the message, once in verse 18 and once in verse 20. It's kind of like a sandwich. And the first time in verse 18, it means the content of the message. And the second time we hear this in this verse, it's talking about the form of the message. Once is saying the message of the cross, what the gospel is, and the second time is saying the method of how that message is delivered through the preaching of the gospel. He's saying it's foolishness to the world. Why would God use preaching of a message to bring salvation to people? Remember the backstory, if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter? In the previous few verses, Paul has identified, he's responding to the trouble at the church in Corinth where there are factions and disunity. In Corinth, there were brilliant speakers and philosophers, and even in the church, there were some really, really awesome speakers. And people were saying, oh, I prefer this speaker or that speaker. I prefer his style. I prefer his style. Oh, I belong to that person or that person. Some people like the power of Apollos' preaching. Some people like the kind of down-to-earth, blue-collar preaching of Peter. We don't know quite how they heard Peter. But people were lining up behind these experts or speakers because of their particular charisma or their particular power or their particular brand of wisdom. And Paul is saying here... Through the simple preaching of the gospel, rather than eloquent speech, rather than fine-sounding arguments, rather than the personal communication style or the power of a personality, he is reminding us that the job of the Christian preacher or the Christian evangelist or the Christian who wants to share Jesus with people is to simply announce and tell what has already happened, what God has already done. It's not the polish of our speech 
that is the power of God to save. It is Christ crucified, the gospel that is the power of God to save. I don't know about you, but that verse for me is one of the greatest reassurances that no matter how we might fumble in our communication and how poorly we might do it and how feebly we feel our efforts going, it is not in the polish of our communication or the power of our persuasion that God saves. It is in Christ crucified, the gospel message through which his power to save is unleashed. It's a reassurance to you and I that when we're having those conversations with the gyms of the world in the gyms of the world, that God will save through the gospel. All you've got to do is preach, share, tell, retell what has already happened, who God already is, what he has already done. We hear this reassurance again in verse 24. He says, To those who are called, whether there be Jew or Greek. By the way, when you hear this phrase together, Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile, that's shorthand for saying, no matter what type of person, no matter what pedigree or lineage they come from, all types of people are included. To those who are called, whatever kind of person, Christ is God's power, Christ is God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Church, the cross of Christ is the antithesis, the opposite of the world's expectations of power and wisdom. It is the opposite of even our own expectations, naturally speaking, of what strength and sophistication are all about. The cross of Jesus is crude, it's rough, it's splintery, it's bulky, it's heavy, it's cumbersome, it's unattractive, it's capital punishment at its worst, it's humiliating, it's despised. Whoever is crucified on a cross or hung from a tree is a curse. It's not what we expect naturally from an all-powerful all-wise God. But it's in the cross of Jesus. Therein lies the power and wisdom of God, that through the weakness and foolishness of God, foolishness and weakness of God, God outdoes the best and brightest of human power and human wisdom, so that, we hear at the end of this chapter, so that no one can boast the reason God does it this way is because, firstly, in our own wisdom and own strength, we could not save ourselves. But if we could, even if we could, we couldn't, but if we could, we would be boasting about it all day long. And the reason God takes the weak and the seemingly foolish things on the cross is so that no one can boast and all glory can be to Jesus, the one who died and was raised for our justification. And so I end with these final words before I apply this passage to us. In verse 22, here is the ringer should be ringing in your ears as you go from this place today, is that we preach Christ crucified. We're not embarrassed of the cross. So we come back full circle to those two questions which we set at the start for us to ponder on. Question number one is, what do you truly trust for your salvation? Is it the message of the gospel 
the life, death, and resurrection with the cross and the empty tomb as the focal high point, do you trust in the message of the gospel for your salvation, or are you trusting something else? Are you trusting in your personal power or your personal intellect or your personal wisdom, strength to save you because they won't? Is it in some religion or philosophy or some way of life that you are actually putting your trust? Because that won't save you either. Only Jesus is strong enough to bear the weight of our sin. Only Jesus is strong enough to bear the weight of the consequences of our sin. Only Jesus is strong enough to bear the weight of death and strong enough to beat it and come back. Only Jesus is strong enough to save. And if you believe this, for you, this news is the best news ever. It's the sweetest reassurance. Yes, Christ is the one who saves. I can rest in his complete work. I don't have to be strong. I don't have to be wise. I don't have to know it all. I don't even have to pretend to have it all together. Jesus is the one who saves. It was he who was crucified. And it is by him I am justified. If you don't believe this, and if you're wrestling with this, then please come and speak with someone at the end of the service. If you are still exploring what it means to believe in Jesus and what the death and resurrection of Jesus is all about, please come and speak with someone. Please speak with me at the end of the service. So that's question number one. What do you truly trust for your salvation? Question number two. If you already trust in Jesus for your salvation, then question number two is for you. What do you hold out to other people as hope for their life? What is the message that you offer them when they ask you, like Jim asked me, well, look, what's Christianity really all about? Is it the message of Christ crucified? Or is it something else? I wonder if there is any sense of embarrassment in proclaiming who Jesus is and what he has done. There's good news even at this point because Jesus wore the shame of our sin and in his death, and resurrection has freed us from the power of being subject to what other people think of us. He's freed us from living in fear of what others say of us and what we believe. And he's declared to us what God has said about us. So, actually, without any shame, without any embarrassment, we're now free to simply retell what has already happened. We are free to tell of his great saving work on the cross without embarrassment, without fear, without shame, we don't have to have all the answers because we're not the ones saving people anyway. He will do it. As you go from this place later today, remember to hold out the hope of the gospel, Christ crucified, raised for our justification. No need to water it down. No need to distract from it. No need to detract from it because it is the gospel that is the power of God to save. It has been absolutely a pleasure to bring God's word to you this morning. And I think we're going to respond in song. So I'll let you mull over what God has spoken to you through his word.